Hi, I'm Laura, and this is Uncatalogued. You know what? I think men are better than women. She's kidding. No, I'm not. They provide for us, and we must obey them because they are our masters. April, stop it. Leslie, you'll never land a bow with that domineering tone. I cannot be smoted. I am unsmotable. Ladies do not start fights, but they can finish them. Sugar, let me give you a little advice to you. If I were a girl, and I am, I'd watch my step. It's quite one of my favourite international women and one of my personal inspirations on a day-to-day basis, Beyonce, who ran the world. Well, in the cultural world, I'd argue that it is, by and large, girls. So for International Women's Day, I'm dedicating our third episode to all you amazing women who work your asses off in our cultural industries. I'm interviewing five women about their experience And it was really genuinely difficult for me to pick just five, as I I do know so many inspiring women, so many interesting women, so many amazing women who work in the arts, and there are probably loads of you who I've not met yet. But I wanted to try and pick five women who are at different stages of their career, they do different types of jobs, and they've come to those jobs in sort of different ways. I've also picked five women to emulate my my personal heroines, the Spice Girls. And as they say, you need five for the power of spice, apparently. So here are my cultural Spice Girls, if you will. I'll let them introduce themselves and explain to you a little bit more about what they do on a day-to-day basis. My name is Danielle Tom, and I'm an assistant curator at the V&A. My name is Stephanie, and I'm Public Programmes Coordinator at the Natural History Museum. My name is Karis, and I am the service lead for Arts Emergency. Val Blythe, uh, Senior Preventive Conservator here at the uh, Victoria Albert Museum, based in Science Conservation. Yes, well, my name's Esther Dean, and at Fulham Palace I'm a little bit of a general factotum, but I look after, we have a lot of costumes for the children and adults to um, role-play and all sorts of... I seem to have fallen into the job of looking after them and and I also act as a I'm a tour guide both for history tours and gardening tours and uh, over the years I've done all sorts of other bits and pieces here. The assistant curator role is very varied. Um, a lot of what I do on a day-to-day basis includes things like answering research inquiries from the public. So people will email or call in and say, I found this in my attic, I don't know anything about it, can you tell me? Um, We do a lot of acquisitions work and obviously those have to be processed. There's a lot of paperwork that goes along with that because we have to ensure, for example, that we definitely have legal title to an object if it's donated to us. We have to make sure that it doesn't come from a dubious source and that the copyright is cleared and that kind of thing. Um, I do some time on our public study room desk, which I really like doing. It's nice talking to people about what they're working on. And obviously uh, collections care, things like getting stuff photographed, bringing things to conservation. There's a lot of um, physicality to this job, actually. It's not the kind of thing where you just sit at your desk sipping tea all the time. Although when I am sitting at my desk, I usually am sipping tea. Um, So my role is quite new to the museum. I'm the first person in post, so it's still evolving. Um, 
basically I'm meant to be scheduling the master schedule of all things that go on in the museum and taking events from different departments and kind of making a, a diary, you could say, of everything that goes on day to day in the museum. Arts Emergency is an organisation that helps young people from less advantaged backgrounds who uh, are interested in the arts, who, uh, and that could be anything from acting, visual arts, performance, even humanities, so we have students who want to do law, um, and what we do is we match them up with a mentor um, who is from the creative industries. So that means that young people who are at the moment uh, wanting to study or wanting to follow a career that isn't being promoted by our government a creative career um, we're giving them the information that they should be getting you know from their career service so my job uh, here at Arts Emergency is going to be um, running the mentoring service so uh, working with our young people and then finding that adult who's going to be able to say you know what here is a world that you know I'm part of that you can be part of too when you're when you're a young person you you get told all those things like you know there's you can be a teacher you can be a vet you can be you know and there's all those we know that there's all those strange jobs that you never you will never have heard of that actually exist. So essentially, I pulled together a strategy for preventing the insect pests from getting into the collections. And we do that, do this by monitoring, not the whole building, because that would just be too difficult to do, but by monitoring the areas where we've got what we like to call the most munchable uh, objects. So where we've got lots of textiles and open display, we'll have lots of insect monitors. Blunder traps and moth lures particularly are used uh, widespread through, throughout the museum. But a lot of people affectionately call me the bug lady, so I think <laughs> that says a lot, doesn't it, yeah, Ed, about me. the kind of role that I do and people do ring up and ask for advice. Um, you know, not just to do with the museum, but often if they've sadly had some problems at home with their own, their own wardrobe malfunction. I think a lot of it is is very practical. Here in the lab we use chest freezers that reach minus 30, which means once the object bagged and wrapped, it only takes about three days to kill any of the insects within. And just seeing the all the, the recent obituaries for David Bowie, it was quite interesting because we had his his woolen one, what they called, not a onesie, but it was like a leotard with a just one arm and one leg, I think. But that was uh, treated in the chest freezer here. So you're probably getting a sense that the day-to-day -day lives of these women are pretty varied and pretty cool. Everything from scheduling to acquiring to mentoring to, you know, freezing David Bowie's leotard, as you do. I asked them next about their backgrounds, how they got to where they are, what they originally wanted to do, did they ever think that they'd be doing this sort of job? Well, when I was little, 
I watched this smash hits program where because um, I always wanted to be a pop star and then I was watching this smash hits program and this woman was a music journalist and she basically got to meet steps and that was my main aspiration at the time was to meet steps so I, I, I spent most of my like childhood telling everyone I was going to be a music journalist without actually thinking much about it. And I don't think I ever thought much about, you know, what I was actually going to do because I always just liked doing things. So at university I studied English literature and theatre um, and I really enjoyed it. And every year I would change my mind about which was my favourite subject um, depending on which was more hard work usually. It's been a strange journey to arts emergency because I I always worked with young people like I I you know have been like a a guide leader for a long you know as soon as I stopped being a guide I basically became a young leader and um, I've been a play worker in a special needs playground and when I was working at the University of Arts London I was running their mentoring program there I got involved with arts emergency there because. I think some one of, one of my colleagues was um, was uh, training to be a mentor, and so I came along and I just absolutely adored it. And because I'd been doing mentoring and training, Neil took me on training mentors. So I used to do that once every couple of months. I volunteered for probably just over a year before moving to Australia, and uh, you know, as what as as you do and. When I was in Australia, a position came available here and they asked me if I would come work here. So I got on a plane and here I am. Well, I trained as a, a designer. I mean, I went to art school in Edinburgh. Mm-hmm. So I was a textile designer, actually specialised in tapestry weaving. But I never wanted to be a textile artist. Um, so it was quite interesting to then move into conservation. And I came to the museum from Glasgow Museums the borough collection with a, an interest in tapestries and carpets and mm. continued to do that here in, in the V&A. And because of that, came across damage and insect pests and worked very closely with an outside consultant, David Pinniger. I didn't think I would be lucky enough to be able to specialise in something that I enjoy doing. Um, but I do think working for a, a large organisation, you, you often do get those opportunities. Uh, and where something is quite a pivotal role and you actually need to do it, it's, it's quite useful if you actually enjoy it as well. Very broadly and generally speaking, people from less privileged backgrounds are less likely to go to museums and are also less likely to end up working in one. And I grew up in a pretty working class house. I mean, we weren't sort of eating gravel and living in a cardboard box or anything like that, but, you know, lived on a council estate, went to the local comprehensive. Um, And it is something I have noticed since working here that the vast, vast majority, um, certainly in the curatorial departments, of people are from a solidly or even upper-middle-class background, relatively, not rolling in money and turning up to work in a mink suit or anything. My first degree was history rather than art history. And after that, I took a year out between my BA and my master's, mostly because I needed to earn the money to pay my tuition fees. I didn't have funding at that point. And then I went and did my master's. And while I was there, I got to work on a small exhibition. Um, So I had some volunteer curatorial experience. When I finished 
that master's degree. Again, I wanted to go on to PhD, I knew that, but the money wasn't forthcoming. So I figured that I might as well, if I had to take a year of working again, I might as well work in something art history related. I got very lucky in getting my first paid museum job. That was at the National Army Museum in Chelsea. And um, I was a curator in, the most junior band of curator, but curator was the job title, in the archives and photographs department. Uh, It's a a quirky, funny place, but I I enjoyed it. Um, I worked there for a year. I had saved up enough money by this point to start my PhD. I have to confess that my initial plan when I did my PhD was to go into what you might call pure academia. I, I was looking for university positions for a postdoc or something of that sort, and nothing came up. Um, I mean, academia is as competitive as museums, maybe more so. Um, so I started thinking, okay, well, you know, academia being what it is, funding being what it is, I need to cast my net a bit wider. But unlike my previous experience where I had essentially walked into the first job I interviewed for, I had a long streak of bad luck. I think I have now interviewed at every major museum in London and quite a few of the smaller ones as well. I would put in applications and I obviously had it down on paper. I would get interviews and then it just wouldn't translate into a job. And you know, I, I was obviously doing something right. I eventually got the V&A job... Up until the age of 14, so I think from like birth until 14, I really wanted to be a vet. I love anim- I still love animals, but I don't really want to cut them open and dig around so much anymore. But um, I definitely wanted to work with animals. And then from 14 onwards, it would just change. You know, you go through that process when you're growing up. So I wanted to be an architect, graphic designer, writer, journalist. I never even considered... Um, a career in museums and I guess I put that down to school it was never um, approached as an option though I never said that even though I loved, genuinely loved to go to museums um, my dad used to take me to the science museum like every half term every summer holiday and my mum would take me to the V&A every half term and every summer holiday um, so I guess it was just through school that I never really thought I could work in museums so I was unemployed <laughs> because I didn't want to go to uni and someone pointed me in the direction of apprenticeships and I was like, oh, okay, okay, I'll try that. And I found an apprenticeship at the RIBA and I fought for it hard. <laughs> I went through, I think it was a four-week process to even get an interview at the RIBA and then had two interviews and I finally got the job. <laughs> that was my first job in kind of museums and galleries and I stayed uh, stayed there for two years, um, stuck it out and then by the grace of some higher being I got a job here and it was the only job I applied for and it's the only job I interviewed for so you know I must have done something well. That's kind of jammy, why not actually do job now that my background, I was always um, mad on the theatre. I mean, in my day, I, mean, I was bought, I mean, I'm pre-television and all that sort of thing. And I used to go to the theatre a lot when I was a little girl, and I knew that that was where I wanted, right from being a tiny little girl. And um, I went round to our local rep, 
and went to the box office and burst into tears and said, can I see the manager? And the manager came and said, will you give me a job? And they let me come and help out. And I, I then actually went to university. I did French and drama at Bristol University. But in fact, all the work I got came from that preliminary uh, um, working with that rep company and I sort of thought I think perhaps I ought to try and do be a little bit more focused and I thought oh costumes might be nice I'd I'd never really done anything uh, and I wasn't that good at making or anything like that but I thought oh costumes that might be okay so I worked at one of the costume houses in London which was a very good background because they used to fill films and all sorts of when I was there there was Dr. Jivago and um, I think Lawrence of Arabia had just come back um, and then via various p- contacts that I'd made somebody said uh, oh mate get in touch with Granada they're doing something and um, so I went there just to do this one show at that stage I didn't even own a television and it was, it was black and white which was very good training and um, so I went for one show and I stayed there because they kept on offering me nice work for oh, almost 25 years and then um, I worked freelance there mainly doing Sherlock Holmes's with Jeremy Brett and in between that while I um, I I'd blow my own trumpet I um, got the very first BAFTA for costume design for Hard Times and then I got a second BAFTA for Jewel in the Crown which was about India and things Yeah, you heard that right Esther was the first ever person to win a BAFTA for costume design It's pretty amazing, right? And also, funnily enough it is still one of my aspirations to meet Steps so next question, and I'm really pleased that I asked this question because there are some really great answers. What's the best thing about your job? And have you got any funny stories? One thing I would say is the utter quirkiness of it. Working in this museum, you just come across people and things and ideas which are so weird, in a good way. You probably never come across them anywhere else. And it does tickle me sometimes to see the kind of strange objects that we acquire and the odd inquiries that we receive and the strange, absurd things I have to do sometimes. For example, a few uh, weeks ago, I had a very strange day where in the morning I was doing copyright clearances for things we'd acquired and I ended up writing to a body called the Egg Information Service because they held the copyright for some old um, marketing posters from the 1960s. Like, Dear Egg Information Service, which was a bit weird. And then that afternoon, I was doing a bit of research for one of my own um, projects, doing a bit of writing on my book. And I ended up having to basically untangle the 18th century peerage of Wales. Some, one of the other things I love is that it's an enormous privilege to be able to come into actual contact with the objects in our collection. And I love the way that people who work here are, are so... They don't take it for granted, but they're very casual about it. Like, oh, put the Matisse over there. Oh, OK, if you insist. Added to that, I love the fact that we can make those available to the public. Even though we can't get everything on display, partly for reasons of space, partly for conservation reasons, 
we are a publicly funded museum, so it's only right that our collections should be open to all, which they are. And, and I, I like the fact that I work somewhere that has that mission, that can open up new ideas to people, can put on an exhibition to pe- uh, that people will come and see and have them going, I never thought about that before, or I've seen this in a completely new way. That was fascinating. And that, that's a privilege. And actually, looking back, if I had gone into a university job, I'm, I'm sure I would have loved that as well, but you wouldn't have had the same kind of cultural reach. I mean, you write an article in an academic journal and maybe 50 people read it if you're lucky. You teach a class, 20 people will walk out having listened to what you've got to say. You put on an exhibition and potentially hundreds of thousands of people could, could come and look at what you've put together. It's just a whole different scope of reach. So I started this job at the beginning of this week, so I can't tell you um, for certain what my favourite thing is going to be, but I know that having been part of the organisation for quite a long time in a, in a voluntary capacity, that really the best thing is going to be when you create relationships that really work. It's not, not every job you get to feel like you're making a difference, and I think it's so important with um, this government in particular to show young people that art is important because otherwise, you know, it will be lost and it will only be people who can afford to study art courses that will be able to make art and that's not fair. Um, The best thing about my job would be the museum itself. Um, In fact, only last week I went into a gallery that I'd just never been in before and it's nice just discovering things and discovering even new meeting rooms that are part of the, the old building or the original Waterhouse building is like an adventure when I can get my when I can get the chance to have an adventure around the museum. It's really good. And um, things are just changing all the time and it's interesting to see how we're trying to attract different audiences and the different exhibitions that we've got going on compared to what you think we should have going on. I work with a lot of people that just have really strong interests in things that you wouldn't necessarily sit down and think about. So I get have a lot of random conversations and stairwells here. When I was doing Jewel in the Crown and I went out to India and it was a total culture shock and I got obviously to not only dress Europeans but dress India and I got there and I thought, blimey, where do I get all the clothes that it's from that these people are wearing? And you can obviously read what they are what, by what they're wearing. But uh, um, anyway, we went up to Shimla, which was where we were doing the filming. And I thought, well, I, it was only ten days before we were starting to turn over. And I thought, what am I going to do? Anyway, um, uh, I went out with one of the waiters from the hotel we were staying in and I bought lots of new pyjamas, which are the stripy trousers that, uh, and um, the camis, which are tops, so they were all new and beautiful and pristine. And I could see that there were these sort of beggars and poor people who were wearing lovely um, old and broken-down stuff. So myself and the waiter... Uh, would go up to somebody and say, um, can we um, have your clothes and we'll give you nice new clothes. And that way I sort of built up a little wardrobe of stuff for things people to wear. Which, And I then found um, a very good old clothes shop as well, which was very helpful, which was the basis of a lot of the stuff 
for Jewel in the Crowns. <laughs> oh yes, there were, there were some other ones. There were lots of Tibetan refugees, and they were often they used to sell things. They um, uh, and they were always wrapped up. They used to sell a lot of the um, the shawls, and it was before shawls pashminas had come in over here. And but they were always wrapped up in old shawls. So these ladies, I sort of, and they were trying to sell me all their beautiful, pristine new ones. And I said, No, no, no! I want the ones that you're, you t- wrap them all up in and take them home. So I sold them those. And about four or five years later, I went back to India. And I went back to Shimla. <laughs> I could see I was sort of at the top, and there was this path that went down. It was it's very steep, and there was this path, and these ladies were sort of halfway down and they saw me coming down at the t- from the top of the pa- uh, path and they recognised me after all these years and they kept on they were poking each other and giggling and sort of pointing at me so we had a lovely reunion which <laughs> I mean that's one of the things about this role is I'm not just focused within the conservation department or within any one particular collection but all the collections one of the, the nicest things was um, I also train visitor services, um, so our gallery assistants also do a little session on insect pests. And one of the uh, gallery assistants has an interest in origami. And as I went round checking my moth lures in the British galleries one day, I came across the most exquisite little origami moth beside one of the moth lures. And I can, and I was quite sure I knew who who had made that for me which was rather nice. I don't know if it's a funny story, but it's rather a nice story. I mean, recently I was asked to comment on planting species for the proposed green roof. And we actually, probably, you you may not be aware, but we've actually got two other areas of of, um, green roof or wet planting up near where we we have the V&A beehives. And that was quite nice to get involved with something positive, you know, rather than trying to eradicate the insects here we were actually encouraging our urban bees to do well and um, I don't know if you've tasted the bee honey but it's actually quite delicious. One of the things when you when you do these kind of coordinating roles you see you always end up with a situation where you need to use excel and um, you know no one ever taught me excel uh, and it was amazing because in my last job they were like really impressed by my Excel skills and I think that made me prouder than anything else because when I started my internship at Lancaster um, my manager Joe he asked me to uh, get in touch with the council and find statistics on the amount of students in the area on free school meals and I just could not for the life of me work Excel out like I couldn't do I couldn't do anything basically and this was my second day in the job and he caught me using a calculator underneath my desk instead of actually doing the formulas in the sheets and he called me out in it in front of the whole office and it was probably one of the most embarrassing things in my life so although I can't really say I'm like the most tip-top administrator like I, there was a point recently where I thought, oh, how far I've come. I mean, you get to show someone else how something's done, and you think, oh. Quite not so much a story, but it's like a reoccurring thing. And it's not necessarily funny, sometimes I find it a little bit insulting. But any time I say, oh, I work at the Natural History Museum, someone goes, oh, so do you, like, walk people around and stuff? And I'm like... No, not that that's not a good job, but it's just funny how people assume they look at me and just make an assumption. They're like, 
No, that's not my job. It's a hard job, but it's funny how people just assume immediately by looking at someone what they're doing online. <laughs> Probably my age more than anything, because I am the youngest. In fact, that's a funny story. You can scrub that. So when I, um, I started as in an office of four women, and they're all in their 30s, and I think they thought I was maybe in my late 20s. They're talking about mortgages and stuff, and I'm like, just looking around because I still live at home with my parents and have no reason to really want to go anywhere just yet. And um, then I was like, oh no, I'm at the time I was 23, I'm like 23. And just the room went silent, you could hear a pin drop. They're like, you're what? You're a child, why are you here? You're a baby, you're too young to be here, you're an overachiever. It's like, no. No, parents said I need to get jobs, I'm here now. <laughs> yeah, being young here is just an everyday funny story. I don't know about you, but I love listening to that section. I love hearing people talk about why they love what they do. And it's one of the reasons I started this podcast. And I certainly felt some of those feelings too. It is such a privilege to work behind the scenes and it is such a privilege to work with other amazing people. And I also am probably guilty of using a calculator under the desk instead of using Excel properly. No one teaches you that stuff, it's true. My penultimate question is about inspiration. Was there anything that inspired you along the way? Was there anyone who inspired you or supported you along the way? I always liked sort of real costumes and it's, and one of my out of work jobs when I was working I utterated at the Academy Cinema which is on Oxford Street it doesn't exist anymore and they showed sort of art films and while I was there they showed um, uh, oh god what's he called um, ah, it's Ivan the Terrible Eisenstein and I thought it was absolutely wonderful. And this was before I, I was going, going into costumes. But I just loved, or, or, and that, you know, if there was one thing I, I think that possibly, if I could sort of recreate or something, that would be, possibly be it. David Pinninger, who, who worked for the Central Science Laboratory and then left to work as an independent consultant has been very much the, the person who influenced me and, and um, trained me up, if you like, in, in all aspects of pest management. Yeah, I think I've been really lucky, actually, in that, um, for the most part, I've had really supportive managers, particularly my manager from my first job, Joe, and he, he really kind of showed me that people do things in different ways and they get the same result, and I think... That's always given me a lot of confidence in whatever I'm doing, that, you know, that I'll just do it the way I do it. And then, you know, and that's not a right or a wrong thing. And, you know, and to always push for good results. And I think working there as my first job and then having Joe as a friend ever since has really, you know, it's really helped. I've been really fortunate to meet some really inspiring people there are four women in particular, so I guess that's quite a lot. But um, so I've had two really inspirational line managers that I'm still in contact with, and two women that helped me through my apprenticeship. 
I think each of them has probably had to deal with me having a tantrum <laughs> one time. They've all got very different personalities, but very strong personalities. Some is like all about tough love, like pick your chin up off the floor and get on with what you've got to do. Others are like, oh, you know, more, have a cup of tea, we'll talk about it. But all of them are just as important as the others and I genuinely don't think I would be here without them because they were just a constant kind of backbone, especially when there are times where I was just like, oh, I don't want to do this or I'm not good enough. They're always like, don't be stupid, you can do whatever you want to do. So I'm always forever grateful. As I said, I hail from a background where there wasn't really a, a path trodden before me. There was no one in, say, my parents' group of friends or through people I knew at school who could say, well, I work in a museum, let me tell you what it's like. I wasn't moving in that kind of circle. So in terms of very personal and direct inspiration at an early age, not, not that I can think of, no, I think a lot of it came from me. Certainly now I'm here, there are senior members of staff who are enormously helpful, very encouraging with their advice. It's difficult to find inspirational figures who look like you, shall we say, who you can look at and go, that could be me in 20 years' time, i.e. it's difficult to find senior women, particularly people who came perhaps from a more humble background, because somewhere along the way we're disappearing. Um, there are about 20 assistant curators in the V&A and only two of them are men. There aren't as many, shall we say, mentor figures as I would like there to be, but there are, as I say, people here who have been really encouraging, really helpful. Danielle's doing a great job of preempting my last question. I asked, what are your thoughts on women in the arts and the creative industries? I kept it deliberately vague. I didn't want to prompt any positive or negative reaction. I just wanted their first thoughts, their natural reactions. It's very much a woman's profession. Perhaps I shouldn't say that, but conservation has a very large uh, number of women working in it, uh, as does our professional organisation, ICON. Its chief executive is a woman who used to work here at the V&A. Well, I think it would be good to have a healthy mix. Mm-hmm. Um, but if, if a profession attracts women and women become good at it, there's surely nothing wrong with that. There are a lot of us, but it does seem that we're not getting to all those higher positions. And I do look and see that there are a sea of women and then they all tend to be sitting under a man. And I sometimes just wonder what it is, like what what's stopping us and maybe that is the glass ceiling like the best illustration of the glass ceiling at work but I think it's changing women don't realise that they have a responsibility to other women when they get to higher positions and I've experienced this personally I think we need not a ladder but we do need to help each other out more and some people might say that's sexist and say just because someone doesn't mean I have to help other women, but we are all in the same boat. And sometimes by not helping out your fellow woman, you're actually kicking her down. And I've seen it and it's just a shame. It's just a real shame that you've got to a certain position and you will almost kick other people down to stay in that position. There was definitely 
that, that some jobs were women's jobs and some jobs weren't. I mean, one of the reasons I didn't want to stage my... One of the things I didn't want to be ordering men about. You know, say the set designers would be male, but that costume design became the female thing. And when I was working at Granada, and I had, when I had a lot of fights about this, we were... Um, we weren't paid as much. I mean, I mean, our pay was considerably less than um, than the equivalent male, and one had a lot of fighting, and one and we never got it up to it. And they treated us as if we were oh wardrobe costume. And what, I mean, one of the things that I found embarrassing was that I was paid. You know, reasonably well. I still wasn't paid really what I thought I was should be paid, but the um, the people who were working under me, the dressers and people like that, were paid considerably less, say, than a, a set dresser or the, the equivalent male. And yet they had a much more. I mean, they were treated really very, very badly, and they probably still are. Um, but they had to deal with the artists and, and there's a lot of psychology in it and people get very nervous and they, they're the front line for it and this was never, ever appreciated and I, I don't know what it's like now it's a long time since I've been working there but I suspect it's still the same I do sometimes wonder if one of the re, if there's a kind of vicious circle whereby museum work is badly paid a lot of women work in museums traditionally jobs that have been perceived as feminine tend to be less well paid but I don't know if this is what kind of chicken and egg situation is, this is. Is museum work badly paid because women do it or do women do this job because it's badly paid and they aren't I don't know, aren't seeking the same kind of status that a man would. I, I don't have an answer to that and obviously you know, women aren't some monolith, everybody has different motivations. I would say that um, we were talking about representation of women in museums, but it's very careful not to, for, to forget that, um, by and large, the women who are in museums are predominantly white. And while we might be making some moves towards ending or at least mitigating gender disparity, there's a, still a huge issue with racial representation in the museum world. While we might be making more moves towards women in senior management, those women are all white. So it's, it, it's not a simple question. You have to break it down. So I think if we can address the gender gap at the same time as we address the race gap, that's a much more productive way of, of looking at the problem. The thing with art is it should be open to everyone. And really that's what you know, we're pioneering here, you know, we're fighting for here, arts emergency and if you have a voice your voice should be just as important as anyone else's voice and women's voices should be just as important as a man's voice Mm -hmm. Um, we have lots of wonderful people in our network who do incredible things both men and women the thing is is that as new babies are born and as generations come and go what I'm hoping is that each generation becomes more and more liberal more and more understanding the more equality we can have in each generation the more equality there will hopefully be for those in the next generation and I think you know you can't you can't change everyone's mind all in one go but it's yeah 
I meet the young people. I meet young people, and it makes me excited for what's coming. And on that positive note, it's the end of the episode. Thank you so very much to Karis, Steph, Esther, Danielle, and Val. Thank you for your time, for your wisdom, and for your brilliant stories. Thanks to Jack Westmore again for our music. We'll be back at the start of April with an episode for hashtag Museum Week. In the meantime, you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram, underscore uncatalogued. Thank you for listening. Happy International Women's Day. And in the words of some women who inspired me quite a lot when I was growing up, girl power. It's actually funny you ask this. My my, um, friend... Jenny Gaskell ran a thing called, uh, it was a hundred good deeds and they were a hundred good deeds that people around uh, the world did to do with feminism and uh, my friend Rachel, she her good deed was talking to her son about feminism, Manny, who's a, a really lovely boy and um, so she talked to him and she said, you know, she started to explain what feminism was she said, some people think that women aren't as good as men. And he said, what? Well, those people are stupid then. Am I allowed to be your friend on this? Yes. Okay. <laughs> uh, unless you want to pretend you're not. No, no, I would, like to, I would like you to say that I'm your friend. Okay. Um, thank you for having me. That's all right. <laughs> I, I agree. Don't keep cats in. Oh, okay. Are you sure? Uh, yeah. Oh.